Before we start the Bible talk, let's bow our heads. Let's pray together now. Our Lord and God, we thank you that we can meet today to hear your word. Please speak through this Bible passage to each one of us now, wherever we are at. Amen. I'm going to start with a story for you. Um, most people have heard of the media company, John Fairfax, uh, and its flagship newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald. The Herald started in 1831, and... It was bought by two men ten years later called Charles Kemp and John Fairfax. By the time of the gold rush, another ten years later, the Herald was the dominant newspaper in Sydney and it has been so ever since, hasn't it? John Fairfax and Sarah and their children emigrated to the convict colony in New South Wales in 1838. Sydney's population was only about 25,000 and it had just celebrated 50 years of European settlement. They were very involved in Pitt Street Congregational Church. Fairfax had made a commitment to Christ in his early 20s and had been a deacon, which is like an elder in our church, and a lay preacher in his church. He had arrived with just five pounds. He had been bankrupted before he'd left England. And after a few part-time printing jobs, he became a librarian of what currently is the State Library. Kemp and Fairfax worked very long hours through the 1840s Kemp sold out in 1853 and the Fairfax family powered on for five generations until just 1990. By the 1850s, Fairfax was a wealthy man. Uh, boosted by the discovery of gold in 1856, the Herald now had a daily circulation of 6,600. John Fairfax was Australia's first press baron. There were no phone hacking scandals in those days. And uh, he was a prominent figure in Sydney in the business scene, he was a director and chairman in, of AMP, also a director of AGL, and he was appointed to the New South Wales Upper House in 1874. Regarding his wealth, John Fairfax said to a friend, God has given me what some consider wealth. This wealth I hold for him as a sacred trust. I'm his steward and I'm responsible for the use of it and it must be used in his service. In the last 20 years of his life, he put an enormous amount of time into church planting or what they called Home Mission, through his role on the Home Missionary Society of the Congregational Church. This was really hard work. To get to Newcastle or Wollongong, you went by boat. The roads were not through yet, and it was hard in new towns with epidemics and a high death rate among children. Here's the important part. Shortly before dying in 1877, Fairfax said to a young deacon, for 39 years I've labored hard for the master in our church. Now I'm taking the armor off and you must buckle it on and never lay it down until death. Work for him. Parting words give profound insight into someone's life and values, what's really important to them at the end of the day. What would you pass on to your family and friends if you just had a last few minutes? Here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we have recorded some of Paul's parting words. He was in jail in Rome for the second time and he senses that his days are nearly ended. He does write another 14 verses after this but they're mainly a list of greetings. Paul was actually executed by the Roman Emperor Nero around 65 or 60 to 68 AD which is also the same time this final letter was written. He was writing to Timothy, a Christian worker, an apprentice of sorts of Paul Yet Paul affectionately calls Timothy dear son at the start of this letter. Paul viewed Timothy more as his adopted son. 
So what will Paul pass on to Timothy, his dear son and missionary partner, in these parting words? He starts off with a very solemn charge. Now, I had jury duty this week, and I think that swearing on a Bible in the court before a judge is not as serious as this charge from Paul. So let's have a listen. He swears in the presence of his God and Saviour and judge. We start with chapter 4, verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Wow, that was serious, wasn't it? What could be coming next after such an earnest and solemn charge? We see in verse 2, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Firstly, what are your thoughts on this preaching thing? If you've been a churchgoer for a long time, perhaps you've heard it many, many times and well, it might have lost its impact, perhaps become blasé. Or perhaps preach for you as an uncomfortable, don't preach at me sort of word. Here's what Paul means by the expression, preach the word, as explained in his earlier letter to the Corinthians church in 2 Corinthians. He says, we do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. And a chapter later he adds, For Christ's love compels us. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So this preaching thing is not a shove it down someone's throat thing. It's a caring, honest, relational thing. It's not about me. It's about Jesus is Lord. It's about reconciliation. And it's not preach whatever you feel either. It is preach the word. So what does the word mean exactly? In the Gospel of John, it starts off saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to say, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So the Word can mean Jesus. It's also mentioned 24 times in the book of Acts, such as Acts chapter 13. The Word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region. And Paul wrote to the Ephesian church that you heard the Word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So to spell it out, what does Paul mean by the word? The word is the gospel, the great news that Jesus is the Christ. He came into the world to rescue us by taking the fall for us. Next, Paul also tells Timothy when to preach the word. Paul encourages Timothy to be courageous, not to chicken out, not to avoid it by second guessing that oh, they probably wouldn't be interested not to try and avoid it by waiting for the right moment. I've done that a lot. He says, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season. In season and out of season, that's all the time, isn't it? Be prepared at any time. Paul tells Timothy why to preach the word next. 
It is to correct misunderstandings, to rebuke if necessary, gently, not harshly, and to encourage the faith of people. Verse 2 again. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Finally, Paul tells Timothy how to preach the word. Note the humility and courage that are a hallmark of Paul. There's no arrogance or forcing down people's throats. We're to show great patience and careful instruction. The Apostle Peter echoes exactly the same point in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Ultimately, it's better to speak graciously than to win an argument. Despite Paul's commitment and tireless teaching to the churches he established, he could foresee that things would go off the rails sometimes. That even within these churches, they would in some cases be misled and choose a modified faith that suited them better. In fact, this had occurred a number of times already. The Galatian church had a Jewish element insisting that proper Christians would also fully obey Jewish laws. The Corinthian church struggled with permissiveness, immorality and competitiveness. Why does this waywardness happen? Have you wondered that? People are searching. People are itching to hear what they want to hear. Even ice cream pizzas apparently. And it isn't just the bad old days that struggled either. There's similar itching temptations in current times too now aren't there this church says it's all about the mystery and fervor of the worship experience that church says it's all about you god's got plenty of power and you just need to plug in that's actually a literal quote it sounds made up but it's true another church says your salvation depends on how many hours a week you go door knocking in your neighborhood yet another church says Oh, the Bible's been superseded by these more advanced revelations that only they have access to. And yes, we even know when the world's going to end. Let's read verses 3 and 4 now. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. That image of itching ears is a good one, isn't it? We have a cat that will do almost anything to get a good scratch, and it's the same principle with people too, isn't it? People searching to hear what they want to hear. You can get rich, you can get healed, you can overlook that sin. In fact, the hallmark of these itching ear opportunities can usually tick one or both of these boxes. One, sin and repentance are of secondary importance and two salvation is through Jesus plus something for example Jesus plus this special spiritual gift experience what then is the antidote to this incessant itching then stay focused and remain true to the original gospel Paul encourages Timothy not to be dismayed or give up work hard keep on preaching the word persevere. Paul's not callously saying toughen up princess to Timothy. In fact he's actually in fact what he's encouraging Timothy to do is actually a great reflection on Paul's own 
very own priorities in life, isn't it? Verse 5. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. That is Paul's life and ministry to a T, isn't it? Finally, Paul explains his own situation for the final three verses. You may recall that the first time he was jailed in Rome, he was under house arrest for two years and he could still freely, freely preach and have visitors. But now Nero has started persecuting Christians in earnest. This time Paul is in chains, it says in chapter 1. And Onesiphorus had searched hard for Paul until he found him. He was probably now hidden away in a cold cell somewhere. He asks for his cloak to be sent in verse 13 as well. Around this time or soon after, in AD 64, there was a great fire in Rome. According to tradition, it was started by Nero so that he could rebuild the city as he desired. Have you heard the expression that Nero fiddled while Rome burned? Being a, a violin sort of fiddle. And you know, Rome burned for five days. Christians were blamed as scapegoats for causing the fire, and according to the Roman historian Tacitus, a multitude of them were viciously punished or executed. Paul obviously senses that his days are nearly at an end. In verse 6 it says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. A drink offering was wine that was poured on hot coals and evaporated away as a sacrifice. So Paul is aware that his time is almost up. Yet, he is content with his life. He is satisfied that he has done all that was required of him. Have a look in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. His humility is evident here too. He's done a tad more than just kept the faith, hasn't he? But more importantly... Those metaphors are familiar, aren't they? They're well known in our English language. Keep the faith. I think I heard Peter Costello say that a while ago. And also they're familiar to us from Paul's other writings. I have fought the good fight. Paul has already told Timothy twice in his previous letter to fight the good fight. And also in the same vein to endure hardship like a good soldier. I have finished the race. The books of Acts, Corinthians, Galatians all mention the metaphor of a race, but Hebrews 12 explains it most clearly for us. It says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And the last one, I have kept the faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, Paul famously explains how faith works. He says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Faith is confidence that Jesus really is God and that through his sacrifice we have, his sin, have our sins forgiven and our relationship with God restored. Faith is not optimism. Faith is, a matter, faith is not a matter of leaving it to the professionals, ministers or priests. Faith is a sure and ongoing personal relationship. Faith is life-changing too. How can you believe these things and it not turn your life upside down in a good way? 
So when Paul recaps that I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith, it's not sentimental, it's passionate, it is humble, it's heavy laden with meaning, isn't it? At this point, it's worth reflecting on a couple of hallmarks of Paul's life. What makes him tick? The first hallmark, Paul's perseverance. His passion and zeal stand head and shoulders above virtually anything else we have ever heard of. One biographer, F.F. Bruce, referred to Paul's superabundance of zeal. I think I should say that with superabundance of zeal. And this zeal was intensely focused on the, on the gospel, wasn't it? In Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, which is printed inside your order of service, he says, that's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to all you who are in Rome. And then I think this next sentence is probably the best thing to just encapsulate Paul. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in it, the gospel is in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The second hallmark is Paul's humility. It was no act or false humility. As C.S. Lewis said, perfect humility dispenses with modesty. I'll say that again. Perfect humility dispenses with modesty. You'll see that in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he says, you are witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blame sorry, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each one of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God. What motivated Paul to persevere like this his whole adult life? Surely it was a response to the grace he has been shown. But also, he now explains to us that he had his eyes on the prize. Verse 8. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. I've got a question for you. Do we think about our future in heaven much? The crown of righteousness kept for us? I suspect your answer, like mine, is... um. No, not really. Why is it that we rarely think about our glorious life after death? Is it because we're so busy just surviving to the end of the week? Is it because our society sanitizes and hides away aging and death? Is it because we're actually not totally confident that this is where we are heading? Is it because we're relatively rich and comfortable? Heaven is here on earth for us. Would we think about it more if we were suffering for our faith more? Note again how Paul is encouraging others right to the end. In the second half of verse 8, it says, Now there's in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will, appear, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. I think this verse is a bit like when an actor turns from his scene and looks down the lens of the camera and starts talking to the, directly to the audience, isn't it? Woody Allen does this sometimes. Paul, as he wraps up his final words to Timothy, looks directly at you and me and gives a final encouragement directly to each of us too. 
not only to me but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Okay, so how does 2 Timothy chapter 4 apply to us here in Chatswood nearly 2,000 years later? When Paul says in verse 1, I give you this charge, preach the word, does that you, does it apply to all Christians, to people in full-time ministry, or just to Timothy himself? The answer is yes. The you certainly does apply firstly to Timothy, doesn't it? And it also applies to other people in full-time ministry, definitely. But it also applies to all of us too. Paul is telling Timothy to use his gifts and ministries to spread the word, to spread the gospel as far and wide as possible. So this is appropriate for each one of us here now too. You and I might have quite different ministries and gifts, but however we each do it, we can all still preach the word in season and out of season. We can all still correct, rebuke and encourage. We can all still stick to the truth rather than yield to itching ears and selfish desires. We can all still endure hardship, persevere and serve through our ministry. In closing, it's encouraging and humbling to hear Paul's parting words to Timothy, isn't it? And Timothy and many, many others since then did indeed keep the faith and passed it on through the generations right up to now. So we're very thankful to them for that. If we had to distill this rich passage down to two points, I think they would be, one, preach the gospel, and two, persevere. Now, I just want to point out that I didn't try and find two themes starting with the same letter. In fact, that's a pet hate of mine. <laughs> they both accidentally started with P and there was nothing I could do about it. So one, preach the gospel. We've seen how focused Paul is on the gospel and that it literally contains the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So be courageous. Don't chicken out. Don't say to yourself that they probably wouldn't be interested. Be prepared in season and out of season. And two, persevere. The Christian life can be a difficult one, can't it? And some alternatives can seem very tempting. Some sins can seem very tempting too. Don't give in to those desires, those itches. Don't justify dodgy things. Keep the faith. We all should endure hardship, should persevere and serve through whatever your ministry is. And keep going right to the end. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And so, when your and my short lifespan is drawing to an end, we can be like Paul. We can be like John Fairfax. We can feel that our life was well spent. We can humbly say with them, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness. Let's pray. Our Lord and God, thank you for the Apostle Paul's example and encouragement to us and for your word contained in the Bible. Thank you for the gospel that Jesus came to save sinners. Help us, through your Holy Spirit, to have the courage and compassion to preach the gospel. Please help us to persevere as we run the race marked out before us without faltering. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.